Good morning. Good to see you. We are continuing our study in Hebrews. We've really hit about the halfway mark of this book of the New Testament. And if you haven't been with us, this is where we've been the past couple of months. We're going to stay with this until Advent and then take a break for a few weeks and look at some passages that help us remember that uh, God became man, God became flesh, and then we'll, Lord willing, we'll pick Hebrews back up in 2019. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. Have you seen any of the, the remake movies of Star Trek? Did you see any of, of those? The first one came out, I couldn't believe this, in 2009, almost 10 years ago. It still seems sort of new to me, but it was directed by J.J. Abrams, and uh, Chris Pine plays James T. Kirk. But if you saw that movie, there's this really brilliant thing that J.J. Abrams did at the end of it. Uh, after, you know, after the Enterprise crew has just been through all this crud and they've just almost been killed a hundred times and they make it through, spoiler, they make it through. Uh, you get to the end of the movie and, and the Enterprise has been restored and the crew is all there and all the main characters and um, Sulu says, thrusters ready. And uh, Chris Pine, the way he plays James T. Kirk, just so much swagger, and he sits in the captain's chair and he says, take us out. And Sulu says, aye, aye, captain. And you think you're about to see a shot of the back of the Enterprise, you know, go, go, go warp speed. And instead, there's this slow, beautiful shot of the exterior of the Enterprise. And you hear Leonard Nimoy's voice. And this is elderly Leonard Nimoy. And he died six years later. And he says, space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. And I, and I was trying to remember if I remembered this scene correctly. I looked it up online, and, and the comments under it, you know, people, you saw comments like, why am I crying right now? You know, or I had tears when I saw this scene, or rest in peace, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, it really was a brilliant way to tie that movie back into the whole of the Star Trek storyline. That refra- if, you, if you grew up watching the show or if you watched reruns, that was just said over and over, that refrain. And to put that at the end just brilliantly tied it together. Did you know there's a refrain in the Bible that literally goes from Genesis to Revelation? Now, there's lots of vocabulary that shows up all through those books like God and sin and things like that, but, but there's actually a refrain that is from the beginning. Actually, the last time it shows up is the next to the last chapter of the whole Bible. And that refrain, don't, don't skip ahead, it's in verse 10 of our passage this morning. It shows up again. Uh, I want you to look for it and be listening for it. That, that refrain is something God says when He's highlighting the covenant. Yeah, you know, the Bible covers so much ground, and it's such a big book that it, I know it can be hard for us to get our minds around it. And I'm not standing here saying I've got my mind totally around it, but you know, we're we're trying to understand the whole of the Bible, the whole of God's Word. This this thing about covenant is crucial for you for you to understand the Bible as a whole. 
because it really ties the Scriptures together. It's the structure of the Scriptures. We say Old Testament and New Testament. Really, it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, why is that important? And why does that show up here in Hebrews? This, this theme of the book of Hebrews, we're calling it a book. It's like a sermon letter, we've said. The writer is trying to demonstrate to these readers. They come from a Jewish background. That's why it's called Hebrews. Most likely ethnically Jewish. And they're thinking about going back to Judaism. They've been exposed to Jesus. They've been exposed to the good news. Uh, made professions of faith. But they're thinking about going back to just straight up Judaism. And what is the theme of Hebrews? Christ is better. And he's not just better by like one click. Christ is superior. Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the ultimate. Now, if you were a Jewish reader, as they are, and you were steeped in what we call the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible, you know, you saw all these major figures in the Bible. And they were figures that were present when God made a covenant. And, and they really functioned like a go-between between God and His people that they represent. And that was Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. All those men stood as go-betweens, or I'm going to use the word mediator. And God makes a covenant. And in some ways, the really major one is Moses. That when the people went to Mount Sinai, I am going to read the passage in a second. When, when, uh, when the people went to Mount Sinai and God gave the law, Moses wasn't just there to like <laughs> tote the stone tablets back down the mountain, but he's the mediator, kind of standing, representing all these people at the base of the mountain. When God enters into a covenant and says, Here's the bond between me and you, and here's the terms. Keep the terms and there's great blessing. Break the terms and there are curses. If you were a Jewish reader and somebody's trying to convince you that Jesus is better than, he's better than everybody. He's better than David. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. That would mean something. That would mean he has to have a better covenant connected to him. And that is exactly what the writer is driving home. In fact, he's even saying this. Your Bible has been saying this all along. Let's look at this. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, I threw the kitchen sink at you last week. And uh, I don't know if I said it to the 830 service, but I joked with the 11 that you, you all should have like masters in the Old Testament after listening to me last week. We talked about this guy named Melchizedek who was this mysterious figure, no family genealogy in Genesis, which is full of genealogies. He's a priest, and he's a king, and he's a different kind of priest. And the writer says, we have that, but better. So let's pick up there. Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. 
since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we pause and we praise You that You are the one who not only makes covenants, but You always keep Your covenant. We break the covenant. And Your people always have. The reason that we can know you and be connected to you, be close to you, draw near to you, know that we're loved by you, is because you don't break covenant. And so we say thank you. Please help us to hear you and see how we need what's new. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dana, my wife and I were out of town one night this week, and we went into a market in the town where we were. And we were walking out, and Dana said, you know, this, this looks like the old A&P grocery store in, uh, from my hometown. I hadn't thought about A&P in, in a long time. Like for older, for older people here, uh, did, uh, do you remember the A&P grocery store? If you're younger, you, you would have no recollection of it. There was an A&P in my town growing up. This was a huge grocery store chain. In fact, at one time, they kind of dominated and uh, I, that, that just rung a bell with me. I remember that, I don't know if you've seen this book, Good to Great, it gets quoted a lot by businesses and organizations and that kind of thing, one of these go-to books. But there's a section in here where he talks about when, when did A&P lose its way? It had such market dominance. And then at this convergent point, uh, other grocery t- store chains like Kroger started really pulling away and A&P just went into decline and it never came back and then it went bankrupt. And listen, listen to what he says about part of that history. 
uh, is the brutal facts about the mismatch between A&P's past model and the changing world began to pile up, A&P mounted an increasingly spirited defense against those facts. In one series of events, the company opened a new store called the Golden Key, a separate brand wherein it could experiment with new methods and models to learn what customers wanted. It sold no A&P branded products. It gave the store manager more freedom. It experimented with innovative new departments, and it began to evolve toward the modern superstore. Customers really liked it. Here, right under their noses, they began to discover the answer to the questions of why they were losing market share and what they could do about it. So what did A&P executives do with the golden key? They didn't like the answers that it gave, and they closed it, which is amazing. And it, it, it's sort of a big collective example of what individuals do all the time. I mean, all of us could tell our stories about some way that the facts were showing us that what we're doing isn't working or it's, it's hurting us or it's hurting other people. And then we see a better way and better information and a different way of doing things and we try it on for size and it is better and it is good and we're not hurting ourselves or hurting the people. And then we go back to the old thing. I mean, the, the classic example would be addiction. Yeah, and I, I, I say this very respectfully because some of you have had experience with this, but, you know, you can go into recovery two, three, four, five times and relapse. Try it on for size. This feels better. Sobriety feels better. I'm better. My relationships are better. And then go back to the old. It's like at least if I'm hurting myself, it's familiar and it's known and I'm okay with it. To go back to the old. When all the information is said, this new thing, this new way is good and life-giving and better. I, that is something like what the writer of Hebrews is up against. I mean, the issue is not that these are readers who have never heard about Jesus. They have heard about Jesus. They have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And apparently they've made professions of faith, but there's something about the old way, the familiarity of it, the structure of it, you know, just kind of the I know what to do with it factor that they're thinking about going back and in another, coming from another direction, another facet, the writer is saying, please don't do that. And this is really amazing. He quotes from their Bible. He quotes from the prophet Jeremiah to say this. God told us, I'm going to make a new covenant. If God says he's going to make a new covenant, don't go back to the old covenant. If God hands you a new covenant, embrace the new covenant. Covenant is everything. So let me tell you how I want to look at this passage <clears throat> with the minutes we have left, I want to think about two things in regard to really our relationship with the Old Testament and even those original readers, their relationship with their Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. So let's think about two things, continuity and discontinuity. 
continuity and discontinuity. This is important because, I, and, and I won't name names, but there's a, there's a Christian book out right now that has made something of a splash because it says in no uncertain terms, we need to completely unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Completely. Should we do that if we're New Testament people? Well, let's start out with, with continuity because I, I would argue for no. We should not completely unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I want, you, I, I want you to think about three parties in these two points. Okay, continuity, discontinuity. I want you to think about God and a priest, especially the high priest, and then the people. Okay, think of those three parties. God, the, the high priest who really is the go-between, stands between God and the people, and then the people of God. Now, what... What is the same now that was true in the Old Testament? What's true now that was true under the Old Covenant? What's true about God? First off, I've already said this. He's the covenant God. If you want to talk about what doesn't change, start with God. God does not change. There's no shadow of turning with Him. Look in verse, uh, look in verse 10. Says, now this is quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, but God says, This is the covenant that I will make future with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, what God says I'm going to be is what I've been. What doesn't change about God? God is the God who relates by covenant and God keeps the covenant that He makes. That's true now and it was true in the Old Testament. What about, um, what about the priest? Let me give you a true-false. Can I give you a little true-false theology test? In the New Testament, we can go to God directly. We don't need to go through someone. True or false? All right. Now, you're going to think I'm being heretical. False. It's, I tell you, it's like another true-false test. Let me give you this one. You're going, crud, I was already tired this weekend. Now, now tests in church. Th- this one will really sound heretical. True or false? We are saved by works. All right, let me reword it. True or false? We are saved by our works. False. True or false? We are saved by works. True. By a Savior's works, someone else's works. Very important. It was true in the Old Covenant, and it's true in the New Covenant I can't just sashay into God's presence as I am, as a sinner, and just relate to Him. Someone must act for me as a go-between, as a mediator. It's true then. It's true now. Why is that? And I really already said it. God, priest, people. Why was it true then and it's true now? Because it's still true that we sin. We just disobey 
God. Look at what God says about what's going to be true in this new covenant era. Verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. We still don't love God as we could or should. And, and you and I don't love each other like we could or should. We don't, we don't respond to other people like we could or should. And here's the thing, because I, I want to focus on the discontinuity. But before we leave this, if, if, if those kind of realities don't really get deep down in your heart, what the Old Testament will always be to you is sort of like a weird uh, ancient Near Eastern Aesop's fables. It'll be sort of like weird stories and names in, ge- in geography that you don't really know that well. And just sort of moral lessons, sort of morality tales about people that were really good and brave or they were bad. And so be like the good people and don't be like the bad people. That's what the Old Testament will be to you. But when you, if these truths get deep down in your heart and you see, man, God is the God of the covenant. And, and when he binds himself to you, even if you break the terms, he doesn't break the terms. Because that's who he is. And you can trust him. And he'll provide someone to stand between you and him to take care of our most fundamental problem. Which is that we keep disobeying. When you see that those things were true and they're still true, you'll open up the Old Testament and things will begin to jump off the page. Because there's massive continuity. And there's discontinuity. There is radical discontinuity. That's why there's the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant. Let's think again about God and priest and people. What about God? Well, He's still the covenant God, but He says this. There's going to be a new covenant. Look in verse 8. So important. It says, For He, that means God, finds fault with them, that means the Israelites. When he said, and by the way, that, that is very important, that first part of verse 8. The fault of the old covenant is not the covenant God made. The covenant's not messed up. We're messed up. The people of God are at fault. Verse 8, for he, God, finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. It won't be like the law of Moses. It won't be like the old covenant. I'll make a new one. Think about this. Think about how, how often, you may, not even th- you may not really consciously know how often you're doing it. Think about how often we base decisions on online reviews. And, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of news right now about are these even reliable? How much of them are false? How, you know, is there integrity to these online reviews? But they affect us. Yeah, I was once in another city with Dana on a trip. We just go out of town all the time on trips. But we were, uh, we were in, in another city, and there was a museum that I knew was there, and I was curious about, you know, if it was worth going to see it. And so I looked it up on my phone, 
And I looked up these reviews, and the first review I read of this museum, quote, seventh circle of hell. I just remember looking at my phone, and I turned to Dana and said, yeah, let's not go. Let's not, let's not go to that. I don't know if that was true, but I, I was affected by the review. And, uh, and you know, and, it, and it's maddening, too, because then you think, are these reviews false? Are they reliable? Is there any integrity to this? But, well, you know, what's beautiful is when you know someone with expertise, and you know that they know what they're talking about, and they can tell you what the deal is. Okay, the ultimate example would be God. I really mean that. I mean, if God says to you, this was the old covenant. I made it. It's not at fault. But I find fault with my people who keep breaking it. So I'm going to make a new covenant that will be different. That is the ultimate review. That means go with the new. Uh, That's why the writer, I mean, these are... This is an amazing thing to say to a Jewish reading audience. Verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But there's fault because we keep breaking it. Verse 13 is even more radical. In speaking of a new covenant, he, that's God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What do we learn about God? God still deals by covenant, but He deals through the new covenant. What do we learn about the priest? And this is really cool. We still need a a priest. We still need the high priest to go in by himself and go behind the veil and go into the Holy of Holies. We still need that. But we need Him to go into the real one. Because the ones that were on earth in the tabernacle or the temple, those were facsimiles. They were shadows. Look look at what he says. Verse 1. The point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He means in the actual heaven, in the actual temple of God's presence, not the earthly one. Look in verse 5. They, earthly priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. I love fall. I love the fall foliage. Uh, I love the fall foliage, so I hate to see the leaves fall. But as the leaves start to fall, you know, it's great because more sunlight starts to come through the branches. And you get these great dappled looks on lawns. You know, if if you're watching the sun come through... And you see the, the, the shadow of a branch or even like one leaf. You know, obviously you can look up and there, there's the actual branch. There's the actual leaf. The writer is saying that tabernacle that traveled with God's people through the wilderness and finally into the promised land. And then the temple that Solomon built. That was a shadow cast by a real thing. What's the real thing? The real thing is the real the real tent, 
the real temple of heaven. And, you know, when that high priest would go in one time a year, day of atonement, you got to do it just right, and you've got to be the right high priest. When he went in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies that one day, that was a shadow cast by something else. And it's a shadow cast by the great high priest Jesus going behind the veil into the direct presence of his heavenly father to represent us with his own blood. And what about us? This is really great. Is that the new covenant is not so much about the externals, although it affects everything about behavior, but God says, I will change your insides. And look at how often he says, I will. Not, I'm going to make a new covenant, here's what you will do. He says, I will make a new covenant, and here's what I will do. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, what was the old covenant? It was his law, his Torah, written on tablets of stone. He says, in this new covenant, I will write my Torah again. I will write it on your insides, on your minds, and on your heart where you really live. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. There's the refrain. And they shall be my people. Look at verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Now, so what? Here's the so what. What do you really think is the answer to our badness? And I'm not going to tell you what your badness is, but, you know, I mean, we could all compare notes about what is that thing about you that when I do this again or when I think this again, I'm reminded that I'm not what I wish I were. I'm not there yet. Maybe I've gone days of thinking, oh, I, I, you know, I'm a good person. I wish more people were like me. And then, when, boy, when this grenade goes off, I know that there is a badness in me that I can't fix. Now, the question is, what is the answer to that badness? And think about this. And I've mentioned this before, but I just, I, I, I'm seeing more and more people say this. I'm seeing that more and more research demonstrates this. That the opposite, speaking of addiction, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. And that sounds so counterintuitive. It would seem like, wow, what is, what is the answer to drinking too much? Don't drink too much. Maybe don't drink at all. What's the answer to using cocaine? Don't use cocaine. And more and more, what does the research show? The opposite of addiction is not just sobriety. The opposite of addiction is community. And out of health, and healthy relationships and interaction with others, out of that can flow healthy behaviors like the right use of these things or the non-use 
of these things. So, okay, kind of with that same template, what is the real answer to my badness? Is the answer for me to have my goodness? Let me put it another way. What is the answer to my sin? Is it my obedience? The answer to my sin is that I need Jesus to be my mediator. And from that flows great behavioral change. How do you have that? Guess what, guess what the writer's going to soak in in a few chapters? Faith. I don't have it by keeping the law. I don't have it through externals. I have it through Him. And you know what? We say we believe that. It is incredibly hard for us to wrap our hands around that. You know, I'm bad, and so what do I do about it? I'm going to be good for enough days that I dig my way out. Or I'll go to church. Or I'll go to this accountability group. Or I'll journal. Or I'll do something. And the new covenant is God saying... I will. I will cleanse you. I will write my words on your insides. I will forgive you of your sins. But you will not dig yourself out of your hole and you will not save yourself. Come to me through faith. And I will change you. I do want you to keep my law. But I will have to change you. Now, let me end by saying this. How important is this to God that we know this? It's so important that he became man. And the night before he gives his life, not just as high priest, but as sacrifice, he has a meal with his people. And after he breaks the bread, he takes the cup And what does he say? This cup is what? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He wants us to believe that. That you cannot cleanse yourself, you cannot change yourself, but this new covenant is that I will cleanse you and I will change you. Look to me. And if you've never looked to him, ask him to give you faith. That I I can't obey myself out of this hole. I can't obey myself into being the person that I ought to be. Give me faith in you and wash me and remake me. That's what it is to be a new covenant man or woman of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please drive this deep down in our hearts that we not go back to the old, that we not try to use some external, some action, some resolve, some change on our part to 
cleanse ourselves or bring ourselves to you. We pray that we would look to your Son, the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, and come through him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.